Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, fluent in five languages Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, fluent in four languages Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why, which are the four languages that you are fluent in? Well, first of all, there's English. I would hope that's obvious. <laughs> and uh, then, as people who have listened to this show know, I am pretty fluent in Koine Greek. So that's the New Testament form of Greek. Fluent, not in the sense that I could speak it to a first century speaker, but fluent in that I know how to interpret the Bible. And then it is arguable whether I'm fluent in Hebrew. <laughs> Although we are going <laughs> to, there's going to be a little bit of Hebrew in today's episode. Um, so I'm not really fluent in Hebrew, but I do know a thing or two about it. So we'll throw it on the pile. Uh, and then lastly, I know this crazy ancient language, actually, that nobody has probably ever heard of. Um, it's, pre- it's pretty obscure. Um, it's called Python. What? You speak to snakes, Jeremy? Yes, I do. Jonathan knows five languages, Van Jank. Or fluent in five languages, rather. So which are your five languages? Well, you see, the joke here is that I'm actually only fluent in English, and then I know how to program. And so it's kind of a cheat because it's like, you know, I know how to program in Python and JavaScript and C++ and R. And, you know, then there's a whole bunch of other ones like html and css and you know like all of those other ones so i mean i'm really those don't count yeah anyone can learn html in a couple hours on youtube those don't count (laughs) well so by by way of by by uh by way of uh uh you know maybe maybe validating the fact that you do know how to code jeremy so why uh why is our title for our podcast episode today called return void and then there's like some funky punctuation at the end what's going on there well okay so this is where my lack of programming knowledge is actually uh comes into focus here um so th- thanks for nothing john um but uh because i know python and you would never see return void with two parentheses and a semicolon in the python language because python is written for humans to be able to understand it and it's way better than c++ um, however i do know i do know enough about programming to have made the joke so that title was invented by me when we were studying this verse so for whatever else I lack in knowledge of C++, I was able to make this joke. <laughs> now, since you you claimed you were fluent in C++, so you should explain it. Okay, sure. Well, I... <laughs> I <laughs> I didn't want to flex, but um, uh, this actually isn't valid syntax. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, how would you how would you do it in C++? <laughs> well, uh in C++ when you were well actually I'm not sure if you can explicitly return voids in C++, but um you would so so okay. <laughs> I I promise you. So I just googled return void left parenthesis right parenthesis semicolon and I got a result in the on the website Stack Overflow, which is the greatest website ever, and it is uh it sure looks valid this guy sure looks like he knows what he's talking about 
Okay, okay, that's that's just interesting. I've never uh because typically in in C++ if you're returning a void, um you you wouldn't you wouldn't do so explicitly. You just like leave the return out of the function and then it like implicitly you're returning the void. And then the other thing that's making me confused about this is that um you're uh like initializing the void or either that or like making a function call on it and neither of those things actually make sense to me. But maybe this is just the fact that I shouldn't have claimed that I was fluent in C++. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. It's, if it's on Stack Overflow, that's basically the Bible of the programming world, except it's written by everybody. So, um. <laughs> if uh, now that all of our listeners have stopped listening, so but I. I do have a question that is the is the stack overflow is it the question asker who is proposing this notation or is it the answer that proposes it's the it's the top answerer so I'm just <laughs> the gonna top answer okay so before we move on to the meat of the episode I think we need to demote you to fluent in four languages because clearly yes, my google okay. search is superior to whatever you've done in c++ at your workplace like well <laughs> yep basically I'll, i will accept that i i renounce any previous claims on fluency in c <laughs> so john and i both know english and we both know python which is a programming language um and then i know greek and hebrew and john knows these other worthless programming languages that have weird syntax like the title of the episode well that being said now that again like you said people have turned our podcast off <laughs> Maybe we should actually give the people what they came here for and talk about Isaiah fifty five eleven. <laughs> yeah, see, great. Now we'll now we'll get to uh, uh, me being able to show my ignorance about the Old Testament rather than my ignorance about C plus <laughs> plus. Amen, brother. Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. So our verse today is um, one that probably won't sound familiar to the audience uh, when we read it here in the ESV, but once we read the King James, we'll probably pop out. <laughs> for a lot of people who grew up in the church. Uh, we're looking at Isaiah 55, 11, and it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now that phrase, it shall not return to me empty, in the King James, it says, it shall not return unto me void. And that... Uh, that word void there, I remember hearing this growing up in the church, like uh, people would say, God's word will not return void, right? And in the context, I always heard this in, and I don't know if, if this was your experience, John, but it would always be like about evangelism. So it's like if you talk to somebody who doesn't know about Jesus and you tell them about the gospel, uh, maybe they don't like fall on their knees and repent and become Christians right that minute, but like God's word will not return unto him void. So it's like kind of like you're you're disseminating God's word out to people, or to use the uh, the metaphor in one of Jesus's parables, you're like sowing the seed, right? You're going out there and you're you're talking God's word, and when you do that, it's not going to have no result, right? It'll it'll um, accomplish that for which it you know it was said, right? So that's kind of the idea here. It, it, it seems that I only ever heard this when it comes to evangelism myself. Yeah, Jeremy, I've totally heard it in the context of evangelism, like you're saying, and and I I think maybe the what a lot of people might mean when they're when they're trying to use this verse is something encouraging to the effect of like, hey, like there there's there's power in God's words, and so you, you know you as a person who is trying to share God's word, 
like you shouldn't be super worried about making sure you are the most like winsome or convincing or you know like ideal uh vehicle through which this word is being uh, like presented to somebody because hey god's word doesn't return void so so even if you you know don't necessarily say it all perfect or say it all right necessarily as long as you're like leaning on god's word you know you got some guaranteed results that are going to be coming from it yeah it kind of reminds me of um first corinthians 3 where paul talks about um like he's telling the corinthian church i planted apollos watered but god gave the growth so he's saying like these other guys came along right yeah um i planted this seed and then this other guy came along and he watered it right and so the idea is like each one of us plays a part in this in this uh long story this long game of reaching the lost right uh and so in this way it's like it, yeah it's not going to return void when you speak god's word because even if they don't come to christ right that moment you're planting that seed you're setting things up for the future and in god's timing you know that which will happen will happen you know that which whatever whatever god wants to do you know is going to happen yeah certainly and i think you know obviously this is a pretty nice thing to hear if you're going to evangelize to people because evangelism is a is a pretty rough gig uh especially if you're talking to people you've never met before if you're doing like really aggressive street evangelism hopefully uh hopefully not too aggressive but but at least you know you know what i mean right um you're kind of talking about sin and and people are going to get angry at you uh and if that's the case then you you need all the encouragement you can get (laughs) so you can obviously see why people want to find encouragement from the scriptures for that but it might be an optimistic take but is this accurate is this really what isaiah 55 is talking about um or uh, is this uh, perhaps taken a little bit out of context? Well, you probably guessed, uh, <laughs> given the theme of this show, uh, that we might have to destroy this really optimistic, happy, uh, <laughs> encouraging <laughs> message uh, with facts and logic. So, yes. Well, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe not destroy, destroy it, but figure out what is it that Isaiah was actually trying to communicate to his audience. Yeah. Well, and I, I actually, it's pretty cool and positive in a different way. So. Thankfully, this isn't going to be a downer episode. Uh, There's a lot of cool stuff in this passage. So let's dig in. It's time for the meat. So, Jeremy, I don't think we have really talked about the book of Isaiah yet in this podcast. Is that true? Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head. We've definitely talked about it. I don't know (laughs) if it was the main verse of an episode. Sure. Well, in, in that case, maybe let's take a second and discuss a little bit about where this verse actually sits in kind of the broader flow of the book of Isaiah. Um, now, Isaiah is actually kind of a, a huge book, and it goes through a number of different movements and addresses a, a lot of different themes. And we don't really have time to get into all of that right now. But you can kind of broadly think of Isaiah as having a... Um, Uh, a a tone shift that happens kind of in the middle of the book where so for the first uh, 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah there is a lot of discussion about judgment and uh, condemnation of Israel and the surrounding nations Uh, and Isaiah is very concerned with denouncing uh, 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 the wickedness of the people and the surrounding peoples uh, and communicating God's judgment against that 
Um, but then starting in verse or starting in chapter 40 and then kind of continuing on uh, from there, uh, there is a much more positive spin that happens. And what what you get is this is this is the transition point in in the book of Isaiah where you get the, you know, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, you know, make straight the way for the Lord. And and and, and there's that one. It's this really, really powerful section. And, and I hope maybe we get a chance to talk about that on the podcast one of these days. But the main point here is that we switch from the judgment uh, from the first half of the book to these um, series of prophecies that Isaiah is going to be giving of the future restoration of Israel. Now, over the course of kind of those sections, there are a number of passages that really stand out in the second half of the book of Isaiah. And these are uh, traditionally called the um, the uh, suffering servant songs or the songs of the, the suffering servant. Uh, and there are a, a number of these passages that happen in the book of Isaiah. And uh, each one of them as, you know, Christians, we sort of understand these as being prophecies of, of Jesus, uh, you know, to come. And, and, you know, some of these are, we get these in like Isaiah 53, you know, where there is this suffering servant that's described. And, you know, we're told, that, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we are healed, you know, and, and so the, like that, th- that's kind of the, the, the sections that we're talking about right here. Now you can see that this like sacrifice that is being described here for the suffering servant is something that's made um, on our behalf, you know, that like pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, which is sort of looping in some of the judgment passages from earlier in the book. Um, and you get this like by his wounds that we are healed. Uh, and, and, and this is sort of what we're meaning by a, a shift to restoration in kind of a much more positive tone where it's not about like, you know, us being crushed for our transgressions, you know, in sort of a more of a judgment idea, but this servant who is pierced for our transgressions and that we instead are healed. And that's kind of a, some of the reversals that Isaiah gets into in the second half of the book. Yeah, I think that's a good a good way to put it. I like that you mentioned that the judgment kind of comes in in that second part of the book, but it comes in with the context of this suffering servant, who, of course, we later find out will be Jesus Christ. Uh, and I like that, um, I don't know, because I think sometimes you might tell people, hey, Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 are really depressing, and chapters 40 through 66 are really, like, uplifting. And then people like read it, and maybe maybe they don't quite get it because it's not like everything goes PG keen when you get to chapter forty and and like the themes of judgment go. I mean, the, the suffering servant hasn't shown up yet, right? Like, um, so there, it is kind of interesting. I remember hearing about that kind of two part division of Isaiah, and then when I was reading it in my own devotions, just like many years ago, when I was first kind of encountering Isaiah, I'd be like. I don't know. I don't see it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite get it. But um, I think years later, now now I see it a little better. Like, obviously, you mentioned with the whole make straight the way for the Lord stuff. Like, it does mark a huge shift. And the judgment does it does become recontextualized after chapter 39. Right. And, you know, and, and, and I guess we should illustrate this is sort of a, you know, broad generalizations that we're making right here. Because you do get... Um, prophecies of future restoration kind of even earlier in Isaiah that these are sort of you know the unto us a child is born unto us a son is given you know um which uh, I think that's Isaiah 9 I'm just sort of going off the top of my head right here it's either in the 8 through 10 chapter range somewhere in there and so you get some of the some of those prophecies earlier in the book as well but kind of for the most part you get 
mostly condemnation of sin in the first half of the book, and then this recontextualized, the suffering servant bearing people's iniquity and bringing restoration. Yeah, and not to belabor this point, because we obviously want to eventually get to chapter 55 here, but I think uh, I think it's useful to to just point out here that when we do these broad outlines of books, especially a 66-chapter book like Isaiah, which it often eludes super careful outlining just because it's the, the nature of prophecy is kind of like that. It kind of goes everywhere. Um, it's not that there isn't a logical structure to it, um, but there's definitely a lot of like, I mean, these are collected prophecies. Um, it's not like Isaiah just sat down over the course of a long weekend and plucked out the book of Isaiah. This is like the, the content of one prophet's preaching ministry over a long stretch of time that was collected and edited together into this book that we now call Isaiah. Um, and keeping that in mind, you know, so, so there's definitely a lot of, it goes everywhere. And so outlines are outlines. They're not like straight jackets. <laughs> like, like and it's funny, like, again, I, I know we're sort of going on on this, but it is something that is, is important when, when interpreting the Bible. And that is what this podcast is about. Like I've, I've heard people make arguments, um, like with Romans, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast, Romans chapters nine through 11, um, are this big section where Paul kind of addresses the question of, um, has God abandoned the Jewish people? Right. Um, given everything I've said in this letter so far, has God abandoned his people by no means? And then he goes on to argue it. But I've heard people make weird claims from like verses in those chapters, like, well, this is just about Israel and the Gentiles. And it's like, okay, that is what Paul is concerned about here. But he's talking about like big theological things that bring in other things in scripture. And so, like, yeah, that's the context, but it's not the only like, Again, okay, it's not a straight jacket. It's an outline. <laughs> you need to pay attention to what's actually being said. Right. Know? So given the fact that we are presenting an outline then rather than a straight jacket, what are some of the other themes or maybe bullet points uh, that we can hit as we are navigating from, you know, chapter 40 up to chapter 55 where our relevant verse is taking place? Sure. Well, I think I think it's good that you airdropped us right into Isaiah 53 because that's... um. You know, that's a huge chapter in Isaiah, probably the most famous one uh, because of its description of the suffering servant. Um, so I think that's that's a good place to start. Of, of course, I think we should tackle Isaiah 54 as well. Uh, and um, it's important that when we get to 54, we notice this covenant of peace, quote unquote, which is described here. And uh, it talks about this covenant of peace as God's like favorable disposition toward his people. And it specifically mentions the promise God made to Noah back in the book of Genesis that he wouldn't flood the earth again. Uh, and so it's kind of like a, a um, it's almost like the, the Isaiah is saying that covenant God made with Noah, that at least with regard to flooding the earth, he would, there would be peace and he would never do it again. This is kind of like a grander version of that this covenant of peace that is now being made with God's people. And, and of course this just comes right after Isaiah 53. So what's the implication here? Well, this suffering servant who is, you know, suffers for our iniquities and pays for them for us. It's because of that, that we can have this covenant of peace. So, uh, so here's like verses seven through 10, I think is a good, a good, uh, little snippet here of Isaiah 54. Listen to the words of, of God. This is in God's own speech here. 
For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Well, so there's a pretty good example right there of the positive tone we're striking in this you know, second section of the book. And I think notice uh, one thing that's good to note here is this, you know, the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, uh, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And, and this kind of like the, it emphasizes the ironclad nature of this covenant of peace, right? Uh, even though uh, crazy things might happen, right? Uh, even if all of the, the landscape is laid waste, right? And and everything changes, the whole context of, of um, Israel's relationship to the land, you know, changes and, and all this stuff, even though all the world around you might change, my, my covenant of peace with you will not change. And keep that in mind, you know, because, because this verse that we're talking about today is about like, my word shall not return empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. So the, just like in Isaiah 54, um, our verse in Isaiah 55 is emphasizing just how tight this promise is, just how sure it is. Uh, so, so that's kind of a theme of this whole section of Isaiah here. Yes, what what's definitely in view here that I think you're 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 highlighting for us is this emphasis on like God's um, faithfulness. But but it what really strikes out to me about this, or what really sticks out for me is this idea of like my steadfast love will not depart from you and. It, there, there isn't like a a condition that God is placing on this promise that He's making in this section right here. Now, th- this is actually in I- important distinction with some of the other promises that God has made to the people of Israel in the past. Most notably, you can see this in the covenant that God makes with the people at um, uh, at Mount Sinai after He's brought them out of the wilderness. That this is a like that that is a conditional promise that God makes to the people of Israel, and it's basically this idea of like. Hey, here's my law. If you follow my law and are faithful to me, then I will bless you when you enter the promised land. And there's very much this like, you know, you do this thing and I will do this thing, you know, back and forth in in that covenant that God has made. But that that is not the kind of covenant that God makes with Noah. And so, uh, you know, where where the covenant that God makes with, well, I, I should say rather that the covenant that God makes with humanity you know, spoken to Noah in the book of of Genesis. There isn't a condition on it. It's not like God says, like, oh, you know, I won't cover the earth, you know, I won't destroy the earth with water again, unless you guys like get super duper wicked, then then maybe I'll I'll come back and revisit this idea. He says, no, no, I'm just I'm not gonna do it again. And so I, I think it's important that Isaiah is emphasizing that, that there are you know, it's like the, the covenant with Noah isn't the only covenant that God has made with people in, you know, in the Old Testament so far. And so I, I think it's important that Isaiah is specifically emphasizing the covenant with Noah because it is this, like, I think part of what we're supposed to see here is that it is this unconditional, there's this unconditional aspect to it. That God is not saying like, oh, my steadfast love will not depart from you 
again, as long as you're like faithful to this, you know, thing or, or uphold your side of the bargain, it's like, no, no, that's just like, like my steadfast love will not depart. Well, yeah. And one interesting thing you, you mentioned, the unconditional nature of uh, the Noahic covenant, which is a big fancy word for God's covenant with Noah. That makes me sound like I got my money's worth at Bible college. Um, <laughs> but the, one of those features of the Noahic covenant, um, right? That degree that you got does uh, make it so that you are allowed to to say things like Noahic and Abrahamic and Davidic, <laughs> Edenic, yeah, or, or Pauline, right? Who's Pauline? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my, my, my favorite is Johannian literature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually pronounced it Johannine in college. I don't know what the correct. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. For, for the, uh, for the, for our listening audience, that's referring to books written by the apostle John. <laughs> so, but this, the thing about this Noahic covenant that I've noticed, and I don't know if there's much to this, frankly, this is, I'm kind of ad-libbing here. Um, but it talks about Noah finding favor in the eyes of God. It uses that phrase. And I've always found it interesting that that's the exact um, the exact phrase that is later used for Mary when she's announced to by the, the, um, the angel Gabriel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's this idea of like, um, it's kind of like a synonym for grace, I think. This idea of finding favor. It's not that they like... It's not like Noah was digging out in the backyard and, you know, like, oh, hey, some favor from God. <laughs> yeah. There's this idea of like, you know, God's favor, God's... Um, you know, like my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Right. Um, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. He's like, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. This idea of like, it needs to be the Lord whose, whose emotions, frankly, this is emotional language. Um, it, it needs to be God who has this favor, who has this, uh, this compassion, this love. Right. Um, like there is obviously an element of, um, action to it it's not just like a feeling but it's definitely like a feeling um however we ascribe feelings to god that's a complicated theological issue <laughs> but uh whatever however it works on when in the right. world of theology <laughs> isaiah certainly wanted us to think of god as having great like feelings of compassion toward his people that's how how isaiah portrays it so so that being said let's look at isaiah 55 and i think we need to read this whole chapter uh, and uh, really look at uh, look at what's going on in this in this chapter, and it's it's going to strike the listener as a very much an extension of what we were just talking about <laughs> in Isaiah fifty four, uh, which shouldn't surprise us because it's the very next chapter. But uh, it's going to be the same kind of theme, uh, but with different uh, some different features coming. All right, so so coming in on uh, verse one here, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. All right, let's uh, let's take a pause there here in the middle of the chapter. Uh, so there's a little bit of a different focus here than those four verses we read in Isaiah 54. We have the same idea of like God is generously providing this you know, this blessing on his people. But here, there is something that the people of Israel must do, uh, right? This is not solely the the favor of God, the, the compassion of God. He says, listen to me, hear that your soul may live. He says that you need to seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I'm near. And then there's this, let the wicked forsake his way, right? Uh, let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. And so here we have, you know, it, even with these unconditional covenants, there is an element of like, you still need to hear this, this covenant of peace and respond to it, right? It's not a, um, I guess it's not a, a uh, law-keeping sort of uh, condition in the same way as some other covenants have been, particularly the one on Mount Sinai. But there still is a response required of the people. Um, it's almost like, Sure, this covenant may be unconditional, but you still have to kind of agree to, to enter the unconditional covenant. Right? <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. That kind of makes sense to me, at least. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, so that's here's the the people need to respond. That's that's my point here in in bringing this out. Also, I'd like to point out just because it's really cool that this uh, come everyone who thirsts to the waters. This uh, buy uh, water, buy wine and milk without price. This is. Uh, echoed actually at the very, very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 22. <laughs> and it says, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And it also says, let the spirit and the bride say, come. Um, so so there's, this, uh, there's this really crazy echo of Isaiah 55 here. Uh, and it's literally, I think, the last thing said in the book of Revelation, except for the closing, like, you know, I, John, am the one who saw this vision and, you know, the grace be of the Lord be with you all, right? <laughs> like, it's literally the last thing said, if I remember correctly. So this is a pretty crucial passage, uh, I think, of the scriptures, um, if you ask me. Uh, we can talk maybe a little more about that as we dig more into the passage, but just keep that in mind here, this idea of, like, salvation, th this entering of, of the pearly gates, so to speak, is is like is like accessing uh not just water <laughs> the water of life of course but also it says here wine and milk right not just what you need but what's good what's good to eat what's good to drink bread and you know is, you know why, uh, why do you spend your labor for that which does not satisfy isaiah says right it's so you need you have needs and then there's also these extravagant uh blessings of wine and milk and i think that's really cool about these blessings mentioned here yeah, totally. It's like, you know, it says delight yourselves in rich food, you know, and, and what's definitely in view here is something closer to a feast than, you know, maybe like something being parceled out and, you know, perhaps like a bread line or something like that. But this is like, you know, come into the banquet and, you know, uh, uh, indulge. Yeah, just that word like come, that invitation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's got such um, such beautiful imagery to it, I think. Like, haven't you ever, <laughs> haven't you ever like showed up at someone's house and like, there's, you can smell the food. It's like a party. And oh, then, then yeah. you, you knock on the door, they answer it and they're just like, oh, come on in. You know, yeah. doesn't that feel good? <laughs> yes. Oh like no, that. that's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. It's like that, except a million times better. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, picking back up here, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. For you shall go out in joy and lead forth in peace." The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myr myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So, so right off the bat, I notice um, we mentioned the mountains and the hills in Isaiah 54 kind of going away. Even if that happens, the Lord will still keep his covenant of peace. But here, interestingly, the mountains and the hills are brought up again, but it doesn't say that they're going to be like, you know, leveled or go away or anything. It says that the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing as a part of this blessing. So it's kind of like, even if, even if that land all went away, the Lord's love would still be on them. So he's trying to say like, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with you no matter what, but, but it's actually better than that. In Isaiah 55, he intensifies that. And he says, like, actually, it's not just that, but actually the mountains and the hills are actually going to be better than they've ever been before. I keep saying the word actually. <laughs> uh, but like, it's like they're going to break forth into singing. The land is going to be plenteous. It's going to be abundant and beautiful and gorgeous. You're not going to have the thorn. You're going to have the cypress tree. You're not going to have the briar. You're going to have the myrtle, right? I don't know what the myrtle is. I don't know anything about plants um but, but it sounds pretty cool <laughs> well and one of the things that sticks out to me here is the um mention of the thorns and the briar uh because you know if you remember back to uh, uh genesis 3 with the curse kind of part of the curse and part of the consequence that that um, Adam receives from the fall is that, you know, he's going to have to labor and toil and that, it, you know, it's it's not just like nice things that are going to come out of the ground, but these things like thorns and thistles and briars and, and weeds that are going to be plaguing him. And so what I think might be going on here is it is a reversal of that um, that curse that is placed upon the ground that, you know, it's the, the, the hills are going to break forth and singing and the trees are going to clap their hands. And you know how the, the, like the ground is something that you have to like labor and strive and work to like make it provide for you. And there's all of these weeds, but like those are going to be turned around. And instead of weeds, there will be all of these wonderful trees that are going to provide for your needs. Totally. So, so yeah, I like that you said reversal of the curse here. Um, and what's interesting is like nature seems to be the main theme or the main like metaphor in this section of Isaiah. We saw it in 54, of course, we're seeing it here in 55. God says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be. And then it goes into our verse for today, our verse 11. Um, but I, I like this kind of like as surely as, as um, the, you know, 
my laws of nature, right? The science <laughs> as a broad concept, as surely as <laughs> science works, right? <laughs> right. Then, then so shall my word be. In other words, like this wor- world that I created, I created it with my word, right? Uh, I spoke it into existence. I spoke the, its laws and its operations into existence. And in that way that I made a covenant of sorts with creation, that it would operate according to these rules so shall be this word of you know promise that i make to you this covenant of peace that i make with my people that's how sure it is um and of course that also ties again back into noah right god flooded the earth in, in an exceptional miraculous way and he promised never to do that again it was a sort of uh suspending of the normal laws of what rain does uh you know rain is not an, an initially intended to to you know wipe the earth it's initially intended to uh, water crops and, and, you know, bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower. So I, I just really like this idea of all of the elements of nature um, working in concert in this redeemed way, this reversal of the curse. Uh, and I think that's what Isaiah does want us to see here. I think he wants us to note the that this redemption is not solely something that occurs within us or even something that occurs within like the church as a corporate us, um, or I guess here it would be Israel uh, later applied to the church. But actually it's something that, that flows, uh, at, well, as joy to the world says, <laughs> as far as the curse is found, right? Which I love that, that song, that uh, verse of joy to the world. But the point being, it, it also ha- has effects on this world. Paul picks that theme up in Romans 8 as well. I think we've talked about that a little bit uh, when we did the Romans road. Uh, it's, it's really great. I, I just think it's glorious. This idea of, uh, of salvation being all encompassing on this world, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I love the, the analogy that's being used here as well of, of, you know, you're, you're saying that it's, you know, kind of part, part of Isaiah's point is like, oh, as surely as this is the way that the world operates. So, you know, the, the, this promise that I'm going to make is, is also going to be sure in that same way. I think it's also specific the, 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 the example of the operation of nature that's being used here that it's not just like you know oh as as surely as the sun rises and the sun sets or you you know something like that but it's specifically like the rain and snow coming down to water the earth and like you know what is the result of that of bringing forth the seed and bringing forth the bread and and so it's it's then connecting us back to that uh uh call that god has made earlier in the chapter of like you know come and and drink water and eat bread and you know you know come and have your fill and and how that like the promise that god is giving there of this abundance you know to to come and receive this abundance is where we're then seeing that even down here now where it's like you know god has set up the world in such a way that it does provide for us that the water does cause seeds to grow and for you know things to to flourish so that we can like eat and survive and ourselves flourish and grow and so like you're saying jeremy that it's this it's not just that nature's going to keep operating but it's going to be even better than that like you know this idea of you know thorns becoming cypress and briars becoming myrtle and you know the trees singing and clapping their hands is that it's even as nature already provides for our needs and that like in that God is providing for us through the the natural operation of nature, it's going to be even more than that, that this abundance that like if abundance is built into the fabric of reality in how God has caused nature to operate, how much more is there going to be this abundance given to us 
you know, when we have entered God's rest. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> so before we uh, jump into kind of explaining verse 11 as it fits into all this, I think I have to go on a little excursus here and just point out, I bet you anything there are like snarky atheists out there who would point out that this whole description of the water cycle is not technically scientifically accurate. <laughs> like, I, I, I actually just noticed this now, but okay. So look, it says as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, <laughs> but water the earth. <laughs> so like, obviously, okay. Now, uh, hopefully the atheist would have done their homework enough to know that come down from heaven. Doesn't like there's different definitions of the word heaven. Um, in the biblical languages, it doesn't mean the place where God resides in this context. It just means the sky. Um, so, right. so that's, there's nothing scientifically inaccurate there, but I mean, technically speaking, doesn't the water vapor return to the sky? <laughs> right? Like, so it doesn't <laughs> just water the earth. Well, okay. I, not, not that I really want to get into this too much, but maybe I'll just nitpick the, you know, the theoretical interlocker here uh, and say, well, no, but it doesn't return immediately. It does water the earth first. Sorry, you mean interlocutor? Oh, what did I say? You said interlocker. <laughs> oh, <laughs> interlocutors. Thank you. <laughs> now, Jeremy is nitpicking me, who's nitpicking this, this theoretical <laughs> atheist who happens to listen to our podcast. <laughs> Dude, I bet you anything, this is not a theoretical thing. I bet you if you Google this, you will find like you know, epic takedown of the Bible. Isaiah was an idiot who didn't know about the water cyclers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, sorry. I nitpicked your word. What was your actual argument against our snarky atheist here? Oh, oh, just just that like, well, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't immediately return. It's not like it falls down and then goes back up again, but it does water the earth first. So in, in a sense that like... This this is still accurate. Like the water cycle is like the water does stuff when it hits the ground first. It doesn't just immediately like pop back up into the sky. Sure, yeah, and obviously the point is like yeah, that the rain only comes down. It doesn't come back up in the form of rain. You know, the, inter yeah, the like interconnectedness of all of God's creation does not does not uh, contradict what this verse is saying. Well, now that we've proven Christianity correct. Um, <laughs> checkmate atheists. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've destroyed, you know, this was definitely the linchpin in the atheist argument against the Bible, and we've definitely completely done away with that. So, uh, while the atheists cry um, over our our podcast, <laughs> maybe we should go on to the actual point here. <laughs> so this, <laughs> so let's go back to returning void. This word which shall not return void or shall not return to God empty. So in this context. I think it's pretty pretty obvious that this isn't talking actually about uh, a word that we speak to other people at all. That's not what this is about. It's not a gospel presentation, um, <laughs> certainly, right? Um, not even in an Old Testament form of it. Uh, but rather, this word, this word which shall not return void, is God's promise. It is this covenant, this promise which um, God is, you know, promising to bless his people with. Uh, everyone who seeks the Lord, everyone who forsakes his way, you know, and, and returns to the Lord. Um, so, so his promise to these people is this word which shall not return empty or void. So, so, so you know, now however we want to apply it from there, maybe we can apply it to evangelism, of course. 
but uh, but the the actual point here is not that. It's kind of like a, a simple. It's pretty simple. It, it's it's a declaration and an encouragement. You know, God is faithful to His covenant of peace which I described in chapter 54, and here Isaiah also describes it as an everlasting covenant, right? God is going to be faithful to this, and you should take encouragement in that, just in the same way that you know that rain will will grow crops instead of go back up to the sky randomly, you know? So some people, though, might kind of say, like, okay, I get, I get your point, um, but couldn't we then kind of say, well, yeah, but isn't all of God's word, like his word, you know, isn't there a way that we could apply this uh, pretty immediately to the whole scriptures? Uh, just, you know, even if that's not what this context is about. And yeah, um, <laughs> generally speaking, I would say that that's right. But we do need to be careful about that because the Hebrew word for word is exceptionally vague and dependent on context for its meaning. I'm not sure if we brought this up before. I think we've mentioned it briefly on this podcast. Um, I feel like I keep saying that uh, today while we're recording this, but there's a lot of things that have come up like in little contexts and but haven't been the main point of an episode. Uh, but this is a very important thing, actually. This is a hugely important word to the Bible and to the Old Testament in particular. The word word, <laughs> obviously, um, everything from God's word to just the normal definition of the term to Jesus Christ being the logos, the word of God. This is a huge concept in Christian like theology and terminology. And so it's really good to know what's behind that word word <laughs> when you read your Bible. And it's this Hebrew word devar. And basically, it means a million different things. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. It it, it doesn't mean anything almost, um, which sounds kind of crazy to say about such an important word. It's usually translated as word. Like, I don't know what the percentage is off the top of my head. More times than not, devar will just be translated straightforwardly as word. But it also can just mean thing. <laughs> like the, the Hebrew language doesn't have a separate word for thing. Devar is used for that. So so uh, uh, some sort of context you might see uh, Devar used for a thing could be like, oh, this thing that's come to pass that you told us about, right? So so it's kind of like, the, or this, uh, this uh, thing that the Lord brought about, right? So that could be Devar, but it wouldn't make any sense if you translate it as word, this word that came about, you know? Um, wouldn't make any sense in English. So it can be thing. It can also be uh, lots of other words that are sort of related to speech, but we have a much more specific word for in English. So for example, a command. Devar is translated as command quite a few times in the Hebrew Bible. Um, an account of something. So you tell a story. That's a devar. Um, it can be an act, actually. <laughs> uh, so it's not just like a word, but it's like a thing somebody did. So uh, it can be a message or a speech, like uh, speech itself, you know? So if you want to talk about, um, you know, what another person said, in English, you would never say, oh, you know, uh, well, I, I guess maybe you would in a church context sometimes. You'd say, oh, the pastor really brought the word today, you know, which is kind of like a way of saying they, they gave a good sermon, they gave a good speech, right? Uh, but usually you wouldn't hear people say like um, about like a, a, a speech, you know, they'd, be, they'd say that's a good speech, 
yeah, maybe, maybe they'd occasionally say it's a good word, but uh, in Hebrew, it's more common. Yeah, no, no, that's that that's very much a Christian easy thing to say. Which you know it is it's kind of cool that it, uh, we're hearing. Well, no, that's actually biblical. That's a it's sort of a that's a Hebrewism that we've uh, adopted into English. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I I would bet it is. Yeah, for sure. Which there's a lot a lot of those. Um, so yeah, so it can even be a, like a charge, <laughs> like if you like command someone to do something, um, like earnestly, right? That could be a devar. Like I charge you to do this. Um, so so obviously a lot of these things are revolving around the concept of words and talking, the content of of you know verbs and nouns and adjectives and all that. So it's not like it's a meaningless word. Certainly not. It, but it's just that uh, it's so vague. It can mean so many things in our translations. Um, and if you're if you just read Hebrew and all you think is devar means word, you're going to get confused really quickly. Like I, I can attest to it. <laughs> you got to be a little loose <laughs> in, your, in, in how you interpret that word. Uh, so all that to be, I mean, I guess having said that, the reason why this is important with Isaiah 55, 11 is that I think a lot of people really read a lot into that word, word, like my word shall not return void. So if you go talking about the Bible to people, that's going to do something. It's not going to return void. I really don't think that Devar in Isaiah 55, 11 can be interpreted as like the word of God, generically speaking. I don't think that that's at all a reasonable interpretation of this verse. So I think we have to look at the context and see, oh, it's talking about this specific promise and covenant. Right. So maybe if I could is summarize your argument um, here and, and tell me if this is kind of what you're, what you're meaning to say is that the, the word word in, or, or the actual Hebrew word there can mean a lot of different things. So we need to look at the context of the verse to understand how Isaiah means this Hebrew word to be understood to us in this particular context. And when we go and look at the immediate context, we don't get something that looks like the word of God, like in all capitals, but something closer to, um, you know, maybe something closer to like, oh, you know, this thing that I'm currently talking about, like here in this section, namely the promise of this covenant of peace that I'm going to make. Yeah, I think that's I think that's it. You nailed it. I would paraphrase Devar in Isaiah 55, 11 with the thing presently under discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's kind of the the vagueness of that term um, in action there, which, you know, it's, it serves a very important function in the sentence in Hebrew, but when we translate it to English, let's not throw all sorts of meaning. You know, I've, I've actually, I wonder if someone has interpreted this verse as like Jesus, the word, right. Shall not return void, like, like oh, as, oh, I'm like he came down from that... heaven to earth, right, and died on a cross and rose again. Like, I well, you know, just you, as the rains come down from the heavens, right? You know, Jesus comes down, and it, yeah, yeah, yeah no, totally. It's I, <laughs> I'm certain that that has happened. First, we have our theoretical snarky atheist. Now we have our theoretical uh, overzealous pastor who doesn't understand <laughs> the Hebrew <laughs> language at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, but but in but in fairness, in fairness, it's like it is really tempting to be like, oh yes, and this Old Testament passage is about Jesus too. 
because like there's a lot of cases where y- y- yeah it, it is <laughs> sure well it all points to him you know but you got to be careful about leapfrogging to jesus i don't i don't think jesus would appreciate that <laughs> gotta be yeah like if you're trying to draw a connection between like how many shekels um <laughs> like in some passage in numbers or something like that um <laughs> like you're gonna you're gonna have a rough time with that you know <laughs> how many uh, loops go on each uh side of the sanctuary <laughs> in exodus and, i don't know right 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 yeah you're gonna have a rough time <laughs> with that um and i've i've seen some very interesting uh explanations for why you know certain ritual uh impurities lasted for this many days versus that many days in leviticus <laughs> it's all reading a little too much into it and i think that's what what uh we do with this verse when we talk about it as evangelism um so (laughs) well that being said um we sort of talked about the different blessings entailed by that promise um forgiveness of sin right uh let the wicked forsake his way the lord will abundantly pardon we've talked about uh well actually we didn't uh cover this but uh, we talked about how this uh, promise is a witness to the Lord's faithfulness. Um, so it actually says, it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So that I, it'll make a name for him, right? This is, these are the Lord's people who he's purchased. This is the people he made a covenant with. Um, so it, it speaks to God's goodness. Uh, we talked about the... Yeah, like like God's going to become famous because of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God's going going public (laughs) with his people god going viral so then we talked about the reversal (laughs) of the curse um and and uh particularly with nature and then uh we also talked about the the nourishment so interestingly it's it's obviously there's a spiritual component to this like water and wine and milk right and revelation brings that out when it talks about uh, the, the water of life that's not a phrase from isaiah that's that's john's interpretation of isaiah uh, he spiritualizes this water, uh, but in, but in Isaiah, I think it's literally talking about physical. <laughs> I don't think it's spiritualizing it at all. It's talking about literally. There's going to be wine. There's going to be milk. The land's going to provide. It's going to be abundant. There's going to be physical blessings here for this, uh, and not just the basics, but the luxuries. Right. Yeah. Which would totally be in keeping with the way that a like ancient Israelite would have heard this, where in their mind you know you you have like the the covenant at sinai where you do get these promises of actual physical blessing in the land like you know follow my covenant and you know i'm going to make you fruitful i'm going to you know you know god is saying like i will make your crops flourish and you know you're going to be wealthy and you know there's all of these like promises that god makes and so i i think them hearing this promise they would also understand it as well as this isn't just like spiritual food spiritual drink but like no actually like literal seed literal wine literal bread yeah and of course while there's the spiritual element of that that john brings out the physical never goes away because on the new heavens and the new earth in our resurrected bodies this is what it what it'll be it'll be you know endless bliss in our physical embodied persons right so this wine and this milk of course this promise does have a uh complicated series of fulfillments right so right now even in our luxury in america we don't the fullness of this promise hasn't yet happened um so although it, much of it has right i i would say well that gets into post-millennialism that's another topic for another day uh, but we should but do an episode on eschatology certainly, certainly we've got some of those blessings um 
but yeah, so that's a really cool element of this too, I think, is, is that physical nourishment. So there, there's a lot of cool blessings here. It seems to me like there's a lot of great verses in the Bible about evangelism, and maybe we should let Isaiah 55 be about all this cool stuff. <laughs> yes, the promise of God's eternal covenant of peace. <laughs> yeah. Well, and look, I mean... If you want to evangelize to people, then this is what you evangelize them with. Right. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is you're right. This is still related to evangelism. Like, hey, why not you uh why why not instead of continuing to be a rebel against God, you uh, you know, sign up with this whole eternal covenant of peace thing. Yeah. I I think when we evangelize as though it is only about our soul and not also about our bodies and about nature, um I think we miss an important uh well, not only do we miss an important thing, but we also miss an important segment of the population. I mean, like the gospel was originally, it's good news to the poor, right? Proclaimed to to those who were crippled and blind and lame. That's what we see in the gospels and in Acts. And when we have this full-throated understanding of the gospel, I think that'll help us reach out to people who um, have really lost a lot in this life. Um, which thankfully in today's day and age is less and less of us as a percentage of the population, you know, but these people who have really lost a lot will always exist in this life. Um, and the gospel is arguably almost more for them <laughs> than it is for, for us, for anyone else, you know? So how important is it to preach the, the message of like restoration of God's creation as a part of the gospel, right? Uh, to people who really, are looking forward to their resurrection bodies, you know. Now, all that being said, I think we've looked at Isaiah 55 uh, pretty thoroughly, and uh, it's awesome and all that. <laughs> but I actually think there's maybe another element I want to talk about with this misinterpretation of Isaiah 55. Um, and that is, I think it might be presenting a bit of an imbalanced perspective on the preaching of God's word and evangelism. Um and I want to be careful about how we how we approach this, because I don't want to make it sound like people who go out evangelizing shouldn't be encouraged that it's doing something <laughs> and shouldn't be encouraged that their faithfulness <laughs> to God will bear fruit, because that's absolutely a part of the Bible. But I also think maybe we should highlight that the scriptures talk a lot about how preaching the gospel often won't bear fruit in any obvious way, at least in the short term, right? And so this whole like, you know, God's word will not return void. Well, at least as far as this life goes, it sure might look like it at times. And I think that's a major theme of the scripture. So I just, I didn't want to leave this Isaiah 55 behind without kind of explaining why this over triumphalistic um, encouragement in evangelism could go a little bit too far in one direction. So this is where the depressing part of the episode comes in, I think. <laughs> um, but I, so here, let me tell you what I'm thinking about, John. I'm thinking about like earlier in Isaiah, in chapter six, when, when Isaiah receives his calling um, to do this right. prophetic ministry, God says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be mm -hmm. ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. So there's like the, the whole, I mean, we saw that in Isaiah, um, in, in Isaiah later, this whole idea of like hearing, hear my voice and live. Well, God actually said in Isaiah six that, they won't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So, so there's this idea of like Isaiah's call is to go preach the gospel and get rejected utterly by almost everybody. And actually it even, it's even worse than that. Isaiah is making it worse in a sense for the people right. he's preaching to. 
because they're becoming more callous against the truth. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not just that they're callous, but they you know it, it it's not just that they're blind or rejecting God, but that there is this constant testimony against them that they are hearing you know so it's not just that they're like callous against god but oh well you know they don't really know that you know they don't really know better because they haven't heard it's like no no like they they have a prophet constantly you know they have this gadfly of isaiah constantly like pronouncing god's judgment against them as they continue to reject him yeah and it only makes them more unable to hear or to receive the message which is it's terrifying thought no, no, yeah, totally. It, it, <laughs> yes, no, it, it, it's definitely like frightening. This idea of continuing to be hardened against the truth, and like what, what this makes me think of as well is, um, you know, you know, Jesus talks in a in a very similar way. Um, in uh, I, I'm thinking in the the like upper room discourse in kind of near the end of the book of John. I can't remember exactly where it is. It might be chapter sixteen. Um, you know, where, where Jesus is basically telling his disciples like, Hey, like, you know, everybody, like the world's going to hate you because of me. And, <laughs> you know, and you're going to be like rejected and thrown out of the synagogues. And, you know, and there, there's this idea that, uh, like, obviously the disciples, you, you know, if, if they're going to be rejected because of Jesus, then, it, like, I, I don't think anybody's arguing that like the seeds were sown in the Sanhedrin, that like oh yeah no that <laughs> that they're going to be saved later it's like no 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 I, like I, th- I think there is another purpose when we get like in the book of acts uh where we have like peter and um uh peter and james like testifying before the sanhedrin and like you know like oh this jesus who you crucified you know it like th- th- this isn't I, I i don't think we're supposed to see that as them planting the seeds for something later down the road in an evangelistic context like no this is like the proclamation of truth this like condemnation of these people who have done great wickedness like i don't think that this is resulting in their repentance like i, I like that's not the point for sure yeah i i, I think this uh, so if someone really wants to hold on to this you know god's word shall not return void statement even though they know it's maybe not what the original verse said but they're just taking it as an encouragement perhaps uh, uh, though it may not help <laughs> too much with the encouragement side of things it would help with the theological precision <laughs> side of things to be aware that actually the reason god might be having you out there evangelizing is to judge people like that's might be actually your purpose in doing it <laughs> in God's great plan. Like, you know, I don't know. Like it, there's, it's all over the place in the scriptures. I mean, we don't have to go into every prophet, but I mean, this is all over the place in Jeremiah. I know off the top of my head, like, you know, this idea that the preaching doesn't actually affect repentance. It affects hard heartedness. Um, and it, and it causes ju- judgment to increase on the people. It gives them less and less of an excuse. But it's also in the New Testament. <laughs> uh, the passage I think of is is 2 Corinthians 2, uh, when Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so it's 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 like this idea that I really like the metaphor Paul gives there that like as a, he's talking about himself as an apostle, um, although I think we can extend this to anyone who's evangelizing um, or, you know, witnessing for Christ in any way, even like we give off this certain like 
otherworldly stench, this aroma of Christ, right? It's a little different than what you hear every day, you know, um, <laughs> hanging out in the Pax Romana era, right? Going <laughs> like in your in your roads and aqueducts, right? Just right. The, the normal people you <laughs> hang out with. This aroma of Christ is something different, right? And to some, it produces life when when they smell it, when they savor Christ through the apostles and their relationship with him. It produces repentance and belief in this Christ. But to the others, it actually produces death, right? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool to dig more into that passage um, maybe another time. I think there's this idea of, like, some people like the aroma and some people don't. <laughs> yeah, or or even earlier in 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 First uh, Corinthians, you know, you get this, the message of the cross is foolishness to, you know, those who are perishing. Wait, did is that in First Corinthians? Yeah, that's First Corinthians 1. Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah, and so this idea that, you know, the message of the cross, you know, but to those who are being saved, it, you know, it's the power of God. And so, like, that that same idea of it's the same message, but, you know, to some it is, like, foolishness or terrible or this, like, fragrance of death. And to others, it's power, it's life, it is, you know, forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And there's definitely a lot of this in Scripture generally. It's very Hebrew thinking, this, like— uh there, there's two groups of people, right? It's super binary. There's the foolishness and there's the wise, right? There's the 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 dead, the dead or the perishing, and those who are being saved. And um, it's sort of like this uh, this message of truth that are is proclaimed by the apostles today by by Christians as they go out into the world and live their lives, and you know many many years ago by the prophets like Isaiah. This this aroma that uh, we give off. It witnesses to Christ and how people choose to respond to that either leads to their destruction or their or their being saved. And it's one of the two. Everyone is one of those two people. But this it's just yeah, something to consider when when evangelizing, I think, is this this element of like it's not all triumphalistic. Right. So we have like I I think established this idea of the you know, the 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 two responses and you know it's 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 not triumphal or triumphant what we're doing with evangelism. But like what, you know, is is there any is there anything that we can sit with Jeremy maybe to end on a positive note uh <laughs> uh here before we kind of leave this section and go into application. Like what encouragement does scripture give us about uh like evangelism and the spread of the gospel? Yeah, well when I say not being overly triumphalistic, I don't mean that we shouldn't be optimistic. Um Maybe I'm being confusing <laughs> with that. But I guess what I mean is I, I'm thinking in terms of like short-term and long-term results, right? I think short-term, we need to be very prepared for a lot of pessimism. Like things might not be very great in the short-term. Um, but in the long run, as we approach infinity, right? As we approach, um, you know, the second coming of the Lord, Right. Um, there's a lot of optimism. So, so, so I think that's what I'm saying. When, when I say overly triumphalistic, I just mean like, let's not pretend the kingdom has already been fully inaugurated <laughs> and that we're just going to, and, and, and like, I know that nobody kn actually thinks this way, you know, um, nobody actually thinks that they're just going to preach the word of God and like, everyone's going to repent, you know? Um, right. Uh, but, uh, you know. I just want to theologically undergird that feeling. I want people to like be aware that it's okay to feel like maybe no one ever comes to the Lord through me. 
even if I really work right. hard at evangelism. And maybe that's like actually the point. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I, I think people need to be okay with that because the prophets were like that. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. that you should be a jerk. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't like evaluate your message and make sure you're not turning people off for no good reason. You want to be the aroma of Christ, not the aroma of, you know, Jeremy or John. <laughs> right. Oh, man, the aroma of Jeremy and John. <laughs> we should merchandise that. <laughs> so so I think that's my point. Um but yeah, so so like Isaiah 6 goes on. We mentioned the whole, um, you know, uh, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting that, that Isaiah goes on and, and he asks, for how long, Lord? And the Lord answers him, uh, quote, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the Lord is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So it's like, no matter how much this gets decimated, no matter how much your preaching fails to produce any repentance in the people, there's a holy seed. And that will be the stump that leads to the tree of, you know, of all salvation, right? Like, like as Paul will go on to say in Romans, this tree of Gentiles and Jews who all worship Christ, who are rooted in Christ, you know? Um, so, and, and this idea of a seed, it, it, it comes up again and again, right? Um, the, the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, right? So this, I think, means that in the short run, we <laughs> it could be really bad, like I said before. It could be right. a tenth of everybody and everything in the land gets destroyed and we ain't even seen nothing yet then that's how bad it could be but there's going to be a seed and that seed is the most optimistic thing ever because that's the seed that grows the kingdom of heaven so so there's my uh, encouraging message <laughs> like we all have a, a role to play in this and and i think we're probably speaking to a number of people who who like you and i i know are quite dissatisfied with the direction they see um, Western culture going in, um, to say the least, right? And um, and I think people are, are. I've seen some very silly takes on how to respond to that as Christians, some very pessimistic, um, and not in a good way. So I don't know. I I think we need to embrace the reality that this could be a tough season for the church, and that could maybe mean hundreds of years. But uh, but also that seed is there. So. I don't know if that got kind of corny at the end or not, but uh. <laughs> no good. I, th I think it's actually very encouraging. Good to hear. <laughs> it's time for the other meat. So for a first application point here, let's circle back to the promise that we are that we are given in Isaiah 55. And that is that part of God's covenant of peace that he has promised entails a kind of physical restoration, that there is a restoration of nature, there is a restoration of ourselves, 
and that we should be like looking to that and hoping in that that god's promise isn't something that just like happens after we die you know it's not like we're being given a like a ticket which gets us uh you know into heaven per se now it 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 is the case that there are promises for after our deaths but that god's promise is something that is true for us even now yeah true for us now and true in an even truer way after we die you know i think that's that's cool to to cling on to you know how jesus says um everyone who has left their houses their brothers their sisters etc will receive a hundred times as much in this life and will inherit eternal life you know saying that like being willing to give up a few of those physical things not only might grant eternal life well it does grant eternal life but it like also brings benefits you, you didn't even know were there um in the here and now yeah, as a second application point here, um, I, I I think we can just be resting in the confidence that God is faithful. That's sort of what the whole section is about, that the this covenant of peace is something that God is going to do. And the whole point is that God is going to surely do it. So I, I think we should be depending upon God's faithfulness. So this is that, you know, we should have patience for ourselves that when our faith does lag or, you know, if we are, you know, if it is the case that um, uh, we are in a time of hardship, that we can have confidence that God is going to provide for us. You know, he's both going to provide for us in our physical needs immediately now. You know, that that's part of the the point in Isaiah 55 as well, that, you know, God sends the rain, you know, to, to provide for us, that this abundance in nature is a way that God cares for us. But more than that, that God is faithful, that he's going to care for us even more um, in the next life as well. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's reassuring that that promise is unconditional. <laughs> like, if... If my faith lags, I know that, like, it's not my faithfulness that keeps me in the covenant ultimately, right? Right, um, but it's God's faithfulness. Yeah, that, that's that's the biggest encouragement, I think, in Isaiah. And, and again, I mean, that's what, that's what the very end of the scriptures say, it, it, you know, metaphorically, it's all about, right? Come and drink the water of life without price, without condition, right? Well, I think with... Um, I think with uh, all our talking about evangelism, I think an obvious uh, application point here would be for number three, uh, we should embrace that God has purposes in evangelism beyond what we would consider to be success. Um, and uh, which is both, uh, you know, to say we shouldn't be overly bra- braggadocious about the number <laughs> of souls we win or whatever, <laughs> but it's also to say that like we shouldn't be discouraged if things don't, uh, don't turn out quite like it did for the apostles on the day of Pentecost, you know? (laughs) Right. And, and with that, I think we should uh, maybe for application point number four, we should be setting our expectations around evangelism as something that is, you know, maybe sober, not necessarily dire, but sober that, you know, we like, I don't think we should be expecting to um, ourselves be the vehicle through which some great revival is initiated you know that the there there is a great deal of like faithful work that God requires of his people that isn't like flashy or big but that you know like you're saying Jeremy God has his purposes in the the way that he's orchestrating things and you know 
perhaps it is the case that you're that you are in fact called to evangelism, but it's an evangelism that is a, a testimony against people's hard heartedness, not necessarily an evangelism that results in you know many people uh, uh, coming to faith. Totally, and I think along with sober mindedness and evangelism comes like. Uh, it, we should maybe do a whole episode on this actually. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think it comes along with it, like get rid of all that swagger. Like I, 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 that's the only way I know how to put it. Have you ever seen like a street preacher who's really bold for Christ, but just has so much swagger about it, arrogance about it. They're cute. They like think of like cute <laughs> things to say, like God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, that kind of thing. You know, which is like, that's like a funny Babylon B article. But if you're out preaching the gospel, you shouldn't be cute like that. I, that's just my take. <laughs> Do you agree or, or am I way off here? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I, um, I'm not sure I have an opinion at this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to say because I guess some of the things the prophets do could be described as cute. Um, <laughs> by that definition, <laughs> but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. I think what I'm just trying to say is like, you know, take it seriously, right? Um, this isn't going to be like every day you're coming back to the church office and like high-fiving each other. Oh yeah. Seven baptisms on site. I mean, like that's just not expect to get rejected by everybody and, and to maybe have a few good conversations that are productive, but don't end in anything conclusive. You know? That's like normal evangelism, I think. Right. Um, and uh, speak to people honestly and forthrightly. Don't, don't like shy away from the truth, present it honestly and don't get cute. Um, just be personable and honest. Right. I, I would say that's the, <laughs> the goal, but uh <laughs> We'll we'll talk about that in another episode, dude. That would be a good one to get into details on. <laughs> you heard it first here, folks. Application point number five: Don't get cute. Okay, but actually, I think we got to leave with that one. No, no. So yeah, I, I think it, we should accept that the gospel is foolishness to to those who are perishing. Um, and so I think along with that uh, comes like, don't shy away from being considered a fool. Uh, you should expect for people to think you're stupid <laughs> for believing what you believe. Um, and the people who think you're stupid might be really smart people. So, you know, th that's something to keep in mind, too. Uh, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Yeah, if I, if I never believed that before, I sure do now. <laughs> <laughs> you're in 2021 on the other side of on the other side of 2020. <laughs> It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, for our closing verse, uh, we have the a section from Psalm 119. Uh, this is verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Amen. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.